American Notes, Chapter 9. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Brad Philippone. American Notes by Charles Dickens, Chapter 9. A Night Steamer on the Potomac River, Virginia Road and a Black Driver, Richmond, Baltimore, the Harrisburg Mail, and a Glimpse of the City, a Canal Boat. We were to proceed in the first instance by steamboat, and as it is usual to sleep on board, in consequence of the starting hour being four o'clock in the morning, we went down to where she lay, at that very uncomfortable time for such expeditions when slippers are most valuable, and a familiar bed, in the perspective of an hour or two, looks uncommonly pleasant. It is ten o'clock at night, say half-past ten, moonlight, warm, and dull enough. The steamer, not unlike a child's Noah's Ark in form, with the machinery on the top of the roof, is riding lazily up and down, and bumping clumsily against the wooden pier as the ripple of the river trifles with its unwieldy carcass. The wharf is some distance from the city. There is nobody down here, and one or two dull lamps upon the steamer's decks are the only signs of life remaining when our coach has driven away. As soon as our footsteps are heard upon the planks, a fat negress, particularly favoured by nature in respect of bustle, emerges from some dark stairs and marshals my wife towards the lady's cabin to which retreat she goes, followed by a mighty bale of cloaks and greatcoats. I valiantly resolved not to go to bed at all, but to walk up and down the pier till morning. I begin my promenade, thinking of all kinds of distant things and persons and of nothing near, and pace up and down for half an hour. Then I go on board again, and, getting into the light of one of the lamps, look at my watch and think it must have stopped, and wonder what has become of the faithful secretary whom I brought along with me from Boston. He is supping with our late landlord, a field-marshal at least, no doubt, in honour of our departure, and maybe two hours longer. I walk again, but it gets duller and duller. The moon goes down. Next June seems farther off in the dark and the echoes of my footsteps make me nervous. It has turned cold, too, and walking up and down without my companion in such lonely circumstances is but poor amusement. So I break my staunch resolution, and think it may be perhaps as well to go to bed. I go on board again, open the door of the gentleman's cabin, and walk in. Somehow or other, from its being so quiet, I suppose, I have taken it into my head that there is nobody there. To my horror and amazement, it is full of sleepers in every stage, shape, attitude, and variety of slumber. In the berths, on the chairs, on the floors, on the tables, and particularly round the stove, my detested enemy. I take another step forward and slip on the shining face of a black steward, who lies rolled in a blanket on the floor. He jumps up, grins, half in pain and half in hospitality, whispers my own name in my ear, and groping among the sleepers leads me to my berth. Standing beside it, I count these slumbering passengers and get past forty. There is no use going further, so I begin to undress. As the chairs are all occupied, and there is nothing else to put my clothes on, I deposit them upon the ground, not without soiling my hands, for it is in the same condition as the carpets in the capital, and from the same cause. Having but partially undressed, I clamber on my shelf, and hold the curtain open for a few minutes, while I look round on all my fellow-travellers again. That done, 
I let it fall on them, and on the world, turn round, and go to sleep. I wake, of course, when we get under way, for there is a good deal of noise. The day is then just breaking. Everybody wakes at the same time. Some are self-possessed directly, and some are much perplexed to make out where they are until they have rubbed their eyes, and, leaning on one elbow, looked about them. Some yawn, some groan, nearly all spit, and a few get up. I am among the risers, for it is easy to feel, without going into the fresh air, that the atmosphere of the cabin is vile in the last degree. I huddle on my clothes, go down into the fore-cabin, get shaved by the barber, and wash myself. The washing and dressing apparatus for the passengers generally consist of two jack-towels, three small wooden basins, a keg of water, and a ladle to serve it out with, six square inches of looking-glass, two ditto-ditto of yellow soap, a comb and brush for the head, and nothing for the teeth. Everybody uses the comb and brush except myself. Everybody stares to see me using my own, and two or three gentlemen are strongly disposed to banter me on my prejudices, but don't. When I have made my toilet, I go upon the hurricane deck, and set in for two hours of hard walking up and down. The sun is rising brilliantly, and we are passing Mount Vernon, where Washington lies buried. The river is wide and rapid, and its banks are beautiful. All the glory and splendor of the day are coming on, and growing brighter every minute. At eight o'clock we breakfast in the cabin where I pass the night, but the windows and doors are all thrown open, and now it is fresh enough. There is no hurry or greediness apparent in the dispatch of the meal. It is longer than a travelling breakfast with us, more orderly and more polite. Soon after nine o'clock we come to Potomac Creek, where we are to land, and then comes the oddest part of the journey. Seven stage-coaches are preparing to carry us on. Some of them are ready, some of them are not ready. Some of the drivers are blacks, some whites. There are four horses to each coach, and all the horses, harnessed or unharnessed, are there. The passengers are getting out of the steamboat and into the coaches. The luggage is being transferred in noisy wheelbarrows. The horses are frightened and impatient to start. The black drivers are chattering to them like so many monkeys, and the white ones whooping like so many drovers, for the main thing to be done in all kinds of hostling here is to make as much noise as possible. The coaches are something like the French coaches, but not nearly so good. In lieu of springs they are hung on bands of the strongest leather. There is very little choice or difference between them, and they may be likened to the car portion of the swings at an English fair, roofed, put upon axle-trees and wheels, and curtained with painted canvas. They are covered with mud from the roofs to the wheel-tire, and have never been cleaned since they were first built. The tickets we have received on board the steamboat are marked number one, so we belong to coach number one. I throw my coat on the box, and hoist my wife and her maid into the inside. It has only one step, and that being about a yard from the ground is usually approached by a chair. When there is no chair, ladies trust in Providence. The coach holds nine inside, having a seat across from door to door, where we in England put our legs, so that there is only one feat more difficult in the performance than getting in, and that is getting out again. There is only one outside passenger, and he sits upon the box. As I am that one, I climb up, and while they are strapping the luggage on the roof, and heaping it into a kind of tray behind, have a good opportunity of looking at the driver. He is a negro, 
very black indeed he is dressed in a coarse pepper-and-salt suit excessively patched and darned particularly at the knees grey stockings enormous unblacked high-low shoes and very short trousers he has two odd gloves one of parti-coloured worsted and one of leather he has a very short whip broken in the middle and bandaged up with string and yet he wears a low-crowned broad-brimmed black hat faintly shadowing forth a kind of insane imitation of an english coachman but somebody in authority cries go ahead as i am making these observations the mail takes the lead in a four-horse wagon and all the coaches follow in procession headed by number one by the way whenever an englishman would cry all right an american cries go ahead which is somewhat expressive of the national character of the two countries the first half-mile of the road is over bridges made of loose planks laid across two parallel poles which tilt up as the wheels roll over them and in the river the river has a clayey bottom and is full of holes so that half a horse is constantly disappearing unexpectedly and can't be found again for some time but we get past even this and come to the road itself which is a series of alternate swamps and gravel pits a tremendous place is close before us the black driver rolls his eyes screws his mouth up very round and looks straight between the two leaders as if he were saying to himself we have done this often before but now i think we shall have a crash he takes a rein in each hand jerks and pulls at both and dances on the splashboard with both feet keeping his seat of course like the late lamented ducro in two of his fiery coursers we come to the spot sink down in the mire nearly to the coach windows tilt on one side at an angle of forty-five degrees and stick there the inside scream dismally the coach stops the horses flounder all the other six coaches stop and their four-and-twenty horses flounder likewise but merely for company and in sympathy with ours then the following circumstances occur black driver to the horses hi nothing happens inside scream again black driver to the horses ho horses plunge and splash the black driver gentleman inside looking out why what on earth gentleman receives a variety of splashes and draws his head in again without finishing his question or waiting for an answer black driver still to the horses jiddy jiddy horses pull violently drag the coach out of the hole and draw it up a bank so steep that the black driver's legs fly up into the air and he goes back among the luggage on the roof but he immediately recovers himself and cries still to the horses pill no effect on the contrary the coach begins to roll back upon number two which rolls back upon number three which rolls back upon number four and so on until number seven is heard to curse and swear nearly a quarter of a mile behind black driver louder than before pill horses make another struggle to get up the bank and again the coach rolls backwards black driver louder than before pill horses make a desperate struggle black driver recovering spirits hi jiddy jiddy pill horses make another effort black driver with great vigour alley loo hi jiddy jiddy pill alley loo horses almost do it black driver with his eyes starting out of his head lee den lee dare hi jiddy jiddy pill alley loo lee 
They run up the bank and go down again on the other side at a fearful pace. It is impossible to stop them, and at the bottom there is a deep hollow full of water. The coach rolls frightfully. The insides scream. The mud and water fly about us. The black driver dances like a madman. Suddenly we are all right by some extraordinary means and stop to breathe. A black friend of the black driver is sitting on a fence. The black driver recognizes him by twirling his head round and round like a harlequin, rolling his eyes, shrugging his shoulders, and grinning from ear to ear. He stops short, turns to me, and says, "'We shall get you through, sir, like a fiddle, and hope a pleasure when we get you through, sir. Old ooman at home, sir,' chuckling very much. "'Outside gentleman, sir. He often remember old ooman at home, sir,' grinning again. "'Aye, aye, we'll take care of the old woman. Don't be afraid.' The black driver grins again, but there is another hole, and beyond that another bank close before us. So he stops short, cries to the horses again, Easy, easy, den, ease, steady, high, jitty, pill, alley, loo, but never lee, until we are reduced to the very last extremity, and are in the midst of difficulties, extrication from which appears to be all but impossible. And so we do the ten miles or thereabouts in two hours and a half, breaking no bones, though bruising a great many, and in short getting through the distance like a fiddle. This singular kind of coaching terminates at Fredericksburg, whence there is a railway to Richmond. The tract of country through which it takes its course was once productive, but the soil has been exhausted by the system of employing a great amount of slave labour in forcing crops, without strengthening the land and it is now little better than a sandy desert overgrown with trees. Dreary and uninteresting as its aspect is, I was glad to the heart to find anything on which one of the curses of this horrible institution has fallen, and had great pleasure in contemplating the withered ground that the richest and most thriving cultivation in the same place could possibly have afforded me. In this district, as in all others, where slavery sits brooding, I have frequently heard this admitted, even by those who are its warmest advocates, there is an air of ruin and decay abroad, which is inseparable from the system. The barns and outhouses are mouldering away, the sheds are patched and half-roofless, the log cabins, built in Virginia with external chimneys made of clay or wood, are squalid in the last degree. There is no look of decent comfort anywhere. The miserable stations by the railway side, the great wild wood-yards, whence the engine is supplied with fuel, the negro children rolling on the ground before the cabin doors, with dogs and pigs, the biped beasts of burden slinking past, gloom and dejection are upon them all. In the negro car belonging to the train in which we made this journey were a mother and her children who had just been purchased, the husband and father being left behind with their old owner. The children cried the whole way, and the mother was misery's picture. The champion of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness who had bought them rode in the same train, and every time we stopped got down to see they were safe. The black in Sinbad's travels, with one eye in the middle of his forehead, which shone like a burning coal, was nature's aristocrat compared with this white gentleman. It was between six and seven o'clock in the evening when we drove to the hotel, in front of which, and on the top of the broad flight of steps leading to the door, two or three citizens were balancing themselves on rocking-chairs and smoking cigars. We found it a very large and elegant establishment, 
and were as well entertained as travellers need desire to be. The climate being a thirsty one, there was never at any hour of the day a scarcity of loungers in the spacious bar, or a cessation of the mixing of cool liquors, but they were a merrier people here, and had musical instruments playing to them the nights, which it was a treat to hear again. The next day and the next we rode and walked about the town, which is delightfully situated on eight hills overhanging James River, a sparkling stream studded here and there with bright islands, or brawling over broken rocks. Although it was yet but the middle of March, the weather in this southern temperature was extremely warm. The peach-trees and magnolias were in full bloom, and the trees were green. In a low ground among the hills is a valley known as Bloody Run, from a terrible conflict with the Indians which once occurred there. It is a good place for such a struggle, and like every other spot I saw associated with any legend of that wild people now so rapidly fading from the earth, interested me very much. The city is the seat of the local Parliament of Virginia, and in its shady legislative halls some orators were drowsily holding forth to the hot noonday. By dint of constant repetition, however, these constitutional sites had very little more interest for me than so many parochial vestries and I was glad to exchange this one for a lounge in a well-arranged public library of some ten thousand volumes, and a visit to a tobacco manufactory, where the workmen are all slaves. I saw in this place the whole process of picking, rolling, pressing, drying, packing in casks, and branding. All the tobacco thus dealt with was in course of manufacture for chewing, and one would have supposed that there was enough in this one storehouse to have filled even the comprehensive jaws of America. In this form the weed looks like the oil-cake on which we fatten cattle, and even without reference to its consequences is sufficiently uninviting. Many of the workmen appeared to be strong men, and it is hardly necessary to add that they were all labouring quietly then. After two o'clock in the day they are allowed to sing a certain number at a time. The hour striking, while I was there, some twenty sang a hymn in parts, and sang it by no means ill, pursuing their work meanwhile. A bell rang as I was about to leave, and they all poured forth into a building on the opposite side of the street to dinner. I said several times that I should like to see them at their meal, but as the gentleman to whom I mentioned this desire appeared to be suddenly taken rather deaf, I did not pursue the request. Of their appearance I shall have something to say presently. On the following day I visited a plantation or farm of about twelve hundred acres on the opposite bank of the river. Here again, although I went down with the owner of the estate to the quarter, as that part of it which the slaves live is called, I was not invited to enter into any of their huts. All I saw of them was that they were very crazy, wretched cabins, near to which groups of half-naked children basked in the sun or wallowed on the dusty ground. But I believe that this gentleman is a considerate and excellent master, who inherited his fifty slaves, and is neither a buyer nor a seller of human stock, and I am sure from my own observation and conviction that he is a kind-hearted, worthy man. The planter's house was an airy, rustic dwelling that brought Defoe's description of such places strongly to my recollection. The day was very warm, but the blinds being all closed and the windows and doors set wide open, a shady coolness rustled through the rooms, which was exquisitely refreshing after the glare and heat without. Before the windows was an open piazza, 
where, in what they call the hot weather, whatever that may be, they sling hammocks and drink and doze luxuriously. I do not know how their cool rejections may taste within the hammocks, but having experience I can report that, out of them, the mounds of ices and the bowls of mint julep and sherry cobbler they make in these latitudes, are refreshments never to be thought of afterwards, in summer, by those who would preserve contented minds. There are two bridges across the river. One belongs to the railroad, and the other, which is a very crazy affair, is the private property of some old lady in the neighbourhood who levies tolls upon the townspeople. Crossing this bridge, on my way back, I saw a notice painted on the gate, cautioning all persons to drive slowly, under a penalty, if the offender were a white man, of five dollars, if a negro, fifteen stripes. The same decay and gloom that overhang the way by which it is approached hover above the town of Richmond. There are pretty villas and cheerful houses in its streets, and nature smiles upon the country round, but jostling its handsome residences, like slavery itself going hand in hand with many lofty virtues, are deplorable tenements, fences unrepaired, walls crumbling into ruinous heaps, hinting gloomily at things below the surface these and many other tokens of the same description force themselves upon the notice and are remembered with depressing influence when livelier features are forgotten to those who are happily unaccustomed to them the countenances in the streets and labouring places too are shocking all men who know that there are laws against instructing slaves of which the pains and penalties greatly exceed in their amount the fines imposed on those who maim and torture them must be prepared to find their faces very low in the scale of intellectual expression but the darkness not of skin but mind which meets the stranger's eye at every turn the brutalizing and blotting out of all fairer characters traced by nature's hand immeasurably outdo his worst belief that travelled creation of the great satirist brain, who, fresh from living among horses, peered from a high casement down upon his own kind with trembling horror, was scarcely more repelled and daunted by the sight than those who look upon some of those faces for the first time must surely be. I left the last of them behind me in the person of a wretched drudge, who, after running to and fro all day till midnight, and mopping in his stealthy winks of sleep upon the stairs between-whiles, was washing the dark passages at four o'clock in the morning, and went upon my way with a grateful heart that I was not doomed to live where slavery was, and had never had my senses blunted to its wrongs and horrors in a slave-rocked cradle. It had been my intention to proceed by James River and Chesapeake Bay to Baltimore, but one of the steamboats being absent from her station through some accident, and the means of conveyance being consequently rendered uncertain, we returned to Washington by the way we had come. There were two constables on board the steamboat, in pursuit of runaway slaves, and halting there again for one night, went on to Baltimore next afternoon. The most comfortable of all the hotels, which I had any experience in the United States, and they were not a few, is Barnum's, in that city, where the English traveller will find curtains to his bed, for the first and probably the last time in America—this is a disinterested remark, for I never use them—and where he will be likely to have enough water for washing himself, which is not at all a common case. This capital of the state of Maryland is a bustling busy town with a great deal of traffic of various kinds, and in particular of water-commerce. That portion of the town, 
which it most favours, is none of the cleanest, it is true. But the upper part is of a very different character, and has many agreeable streets and public buildings. The Washington Monument, which is a handsome pillar with a statue on its summit, the Medical College, and the Battle Monument, in memory of an engagement with the British at North Point, are the most conspicuous among them. There is a very good prison in the city, and the State Penitentiary is also among its institutions. In this latter establishment there were two curious cases. One was that of a young man who had been tried for the murder of his father. The evidence was entirely circumstantial, and was very conflicting and doubtful, nor was it possible to assign any motive which could have tempted him to the commission of so tremendous a crime. He had been tried twice, and on the second occasion the jury felt so much hesitation in convicting him that they found a verdict of manslaughter or murder in the second degree, which it could not possibly be, as there had beyond all doubt been no quarrel or provocation, and if he were guilty at all, he was unquestionably guilty of murder in its broadest and worst signification. The remarkable feature in the case, that if the unfortunate deceased were not really murdered by this own son of his, he must have been murdered by his own brother. The evidence lay in a most remarkable manner between these two. On all the suspicious points the dead man's brother was the witness. All the explanations for the prisoner, some of them extremely plausible, went by construction and inference to inculcate him as plotting to fix the guilt upon his nephew. It must have been one of them, and the jury had to decide between two sets of suspicious, almost equally unnatural, unaccountable, and strange. The other case was that of a man who once went to a certain distiller's and stole a copper measure containing a quantity of liquor. He was pursued and taken with the property in his possession, and was sentenced to two years' imprisonment. On coming out of the jail at the expiration of that term, he went back to the same distiller's and stole the same copper measure containing the same quantity of liquor. There was not the slightest reason to suppose the man wished to return to prison. Everything but the commission of the offence made directly against that assumption. There are only two ways of accounting for this extraordinary proceeding. One is that after undergoing so much for this copper measure, he conceived he had established a sort of claim and right to it. The other, that, by dint of long thinking about, it had become a monomania with him, and had acquired a fascination which he found it impossible to resist, swelling from an earthly copper gallon into an ethereal golden vat. After remaining here a couple of days, I bound myself to a rigid adherence to the plan I had laid down so recently, and resolved to set forward on our western journey without any more delay. Accordingly, having reduced the luggage within the smallest possible compass, by sending back to New York, to be afterwards forwarded to us in Canada, so much of it as was not absolutely wanted, and having procured the necessary credentials to banking-houses on the way, and having, moreover, looked for two evenings at the setting sun, with as well-defined an idea of the country before us as if we had been going to travel into the very centre of that planet. We left Baltimore by another railway at half-past eight in the morning, and reached the town of York, some sixty miles off, by the early dinner-time of the hotel which was the starting-place of the four-horse coach wherein we were to proceed to Harrisburg. This conveyance, the box of which I was fortunate enough to secure, had come down to meet us at the railway station, and was as muddy and cumbersome as usual. 
as more passengers were waiting for us at the inn door the coachman observed under his breath in the usual self-communicative voice looking at the while at his mouldy harness as if it were to that he was addressing himself i expect we shall want the big coach i could not help wondering within myself what the size of this big coach might be and how many persons it might be designed to hold for the vehicle which was too small for our purpose was something larger than two english heavy night couches and might have been the twin brother of a french diligence my speculations were speedily set at rest however for as soon as we had dined there came rumbling up the street shaking its sides like a corpulent giant a kind of barge on wheels after much blundering and backing it stopped at the door rolling heavily from side to side when its other motion had ceased as if it had taken cold in its damp stable and between that and the having been required in its dropsical old age to move at any faster pace than a walk were distanced by shortness of wind if here ain't the harrisburg mail at last and dreadful bright and smart to look at too cried an elderly gentleman in some excitement darn my mother i don't know what the sensation of being darned may be or whether a man's mother has a keener relish or disrelish of the process than anybody else but if the endurance of this mysterious ceremony by the old lady in question had depended on the accuracy of her son's vision in respect to the abstract brightness and smartness of the harrisburg mail she would certainly have undergone its infliction however they booked twelve people inside and the luggage including such trifles as a large rocking-chair and a good-sized dining-table being at length made fast upon the roof we started off in great state at the door of another hotel there was another passenger to be taken up any room sir cries the new passenger to the coachman well there's room enough replies the coachman without getting down or even looking at him there ain't no room at all sir bawls a gentleman inside which another gentleman also inside confirms by predicting that the attempt to introduce any more passengers won't fit nohow the new passenger without any expression of anxiety looks into the coach and then looks up at the coachman now how do you mean to fix it says he after a pause for i must go the coachman employs himself in twisting the lash of his whip into a knot and takes no more notice of the question clearly signifying that it is anybody's business but his and that the passengers would do well to fix it among themselves in this state of things matters seem to be approximating to a fix of another kind when another inside passenger in a corner who is nearly suffocated cries faintly i'll get out this is a matter of relief or self-congratulation to the driver for his immovable philosophy is perfectly undisturbed by anything that happens in the coach of all things in the world the coach would seem to be the very last upon his mind the exchange is made however and then the passenger who has given up his seat makes a third upon the box seating himself in what he calls the middle that is with half his person on my legs and the other half on the driver's go ahead cap'n cries the colonel who directs go lang cries the cap'n to his company the horses and away we go we took up at a rural bar-room after we had gone a few miles an intoxicated gentleman who climbed upon the roof among the luggage and subsequently slipping off without hurting himself was seen in the distant perspective reeling back to the grog-shock where we had found him we also parted with more of our freight at different times so that when we came to change horses 
I was again alone outside. The coachmen always change with the horses, and are usually as dirty as the coach. The first was dressed like a very shabby English baker, the second like a Russian peasant, for he wore a loose purple camlet robe, with a fur collar tied round his waist with a party-coloured worsted sash, grey trousers, light blue gloves, and a cap of beerskin. It had by this time come on to rain very heavily, and there was a cold, damp mist besides which penetrated to the skin. I was glad to take advantage of a stoppage and get down to stretch my legs, shake the water off my greatcoat, and swallow the usual anti-temperance recipe for keeping out the cold. When I mounted to my seat again, I observed a new parcel lying on the coach-roof, which I took to be a rather large fiddle in a brown bag. In the course of a few miles, however, I discovered that it had a glazed cap at one end, and a pair of muddy shoes at the other, and further observation demonstrated it to be a small boy in a snuff-coloured coat, with his arms quite pinioned to his sides by deep forcing into his pockets. He was, I presume, a relative or friend of the coachman's, as he lay top of the luggage with his face toward the rain, and except when a change of position brought his shoes in contact with my hat, he appeared to be asleep. At last, on some occasion of our stopping, this thing slowly upreared itself to the height of three feet six, and fixing its eyes on me, observed in piping accents with a complacent yawn, half quenched in an obliging air of friendly patronage, "'Well, now, stranger, I guess you find this a most like an English afternoon, eh?' The scenery, which had been tame enough at first, was, for the last ten or twelve miles, beautiful. Our road wound through the pleasant valley of the Susquehanna. The river, dotted with innumerable green islands, lay upon our right, and on the left a steep ascent, craggy with broken rock and dark with pine-trees. The mist, wreathing itself into a hundred fantastic shapes, moved solemnly upon the water, and the gloom of evening gave to all an air of mystery and silence which greatly enhanced its natural interest. We crossed this river by a wooden bridge, roofed and covered in on all sides, and nearly a mile in length. It was profoundly dark, perplexed with great beams, crossing and recrossing it at every possible angle, and through the broad chinks and crevices in the floor the rapid river gleamed far down below like a legion of eyes. We had no lamps, and as the horses stumbled and floundered through this place towards the distant speck of dying light, it seemed interminable. I really could not at first persuade myself as we rumbled heavily on, filling the bridge with hollow noises, and I held down my head to save it from the rafters above, but that I was in a painful dream, for I have often dreamed of toiling through such places, and as often argued, even at the time, this cannot be reality." At length, however, we emerged upon the streets of Harrisburg, whose feeble lights reflected dismally from the wet ground did not shine out upon a very cheerful city. We were soon established in a snug hotel, which, though smaller and far less splendid than many we put up at, it raised above them in all my remembrance by having for its landlord the most obliging, considerate, and gentlemanly person I ever had to deal with. As we were not to proceed upon our journey until the afternoon, I walked out after breakfast the next morning to look about me, and was duly shown a model prison on the solitary system, just erected, and as yet without an inmate. 
The trunk of an old tree to which Harris, the first settler here, afterwards buried under it, was tied by hostile Indians, with his funeral pile about him, when he was saved by the timely appearance of a friendly party on the opposite shore of the river. The local legislature, for there was another of those bodies here again in full debate, and the other curiosities of the town. I was very much interested in looking over a number of treaties made from time to time with the poor Indians, signed by the different chiefs at the period of their ratification, and preserved in the office of the Secretary to the Commonwealth. These signatures, traced of course by their own hands, are rough drawings of the creatures or weapons they were called after. Thus the great turtle makes a crooked pen-and-ink outline of a great turtle, the buffalo sketches a buffalo, the war-hatchet sets a rough image of that weapon for his mark. So with the arrow, the fish, the scalp, the big canoe, and all of them. I could not but think, as I looked at these feeble and tremulous productions of hands, which could draw the longest arrow to the head in a stout elk-horn bow, or split a bead or feather with a rifle-ball, of crabs musing over the parish register, and the irregular scratches made with a pen by men who would plough a lengthy furrow straight from end to end. Nor could I help bestowing many sorrowful thoughts upon the simple warriors whose hands and hearts were set there, in all truth and honesty, and who only learned in course of time from white men how to break their faith and quibble out of forms and bonds. I wonder, too, how many times the credulous big turtle, or trusting little hatchet, had put his mark to treaties which were falsely read to him, and had signed away he knew not what, until it went and cast him loose upon the new possessors of the land, a savage indeed. Our host announced before our early dinner that some members of the legislative body proposed to do us the honour of calling. He had kindly yielded up to us his wife's own little parlour, and when I begged that he would show them in, I saw him look with painful apprehension at its pretty carpet, though, being otherwise occupied at the time, the cause of his uneasiness did not occur to me. It certainly would have been more pleasant to all the parties concerned, and would not, I think, have compromised their independence in any material degree, if some of these gentlemen had not only yielded to the prejudices in favour of spittoons, but had abandoned themselves for the moment even to the conventional absurdity of pocket-handkerchiefs. It still continued to rain heavily, and when we went down to the canal-boat, for that was the mode of conveyance by which we were to proceed after dinner, the weather was as uncompromising and obstinately wet as one would desire to see. Nor was the sight of this canal-boat in which we were to spend three or four days by any means a cheerful one, as it involved some uneasy speculations concerning the disposal of the passengers at night, and opened a wide field of inquiry touching the other domestic arrangements of the establishment, which was sufficiently disconcerting. However, there it was, a barge with a little house in it, viewed from the outside, and a caravan at a fair viewed from within, the gentlemen being accommodated, as the spectators usually are, in one of those locomotive museums of penny wonders, and the ladies being partitioned off by a red curtain, after the manner of the dwarfs and giants in the same establishments, whose private lives are passed in rather close exclusiveness. We sat here looking silently at the row of little tables, which extended down both sides of the cabin, and listening to the rain as it dripped and pattered on the boat, and plashed with a dismal merriment in the water, until the arrival of the railway train, for whose final contribution to our stock of passengers our departure was alone deferred. It brought a great many boxes, 
which were bumped and tossed upon the roof, almost as painfully as if they had been deposited on one's own head, without the intervention of a porter's knot, and several damp gentlemen whose clothes on their drawing round the stove began to steam again. No doubt it would have been a thought more comfortable in the driving rain, which now poured down more soakingly than ever, had admitted of a window being open, or if our number had been something less than thirty. But there was scarcely time to think as much, when a train of three horses was attached to the tow-rope, the boy upon the leader smacked his whip, the rudder creaked and groaned complainingly, and we had begun our journey. End of chapter 9